Welcome to Gut Wisdom, a show about work, life, and how to succeed in both. It's radio that resonates. Now, here are your hosts, Deirdre Koppelman and J.G. John Gassman. If you've ever wondered what makes some people so off the charts innovative, Hmm. I'm talking about Albert Einstein, Ben Franklin, Elon Musk. What, What is it about these people? You know, they've literally changed the world. What makes them so different than other creative types, J.G.? What do you think? You know, there's an old adage, one step ahead, you're a genius, two steps ahead, you're a crackpot. So I bet you a lot of these people were looked at as crackpots, but they were really geniuses. And tonight, we're going to have Dr. Melissa Schilling, one of the world's leading experts on innovation, joining us in studio to share science behind the traits and the quirks that increase the likelihood of success in breakthrough innovation. Yep. And in Dr. Schilling's new book, Quirky, which you have to just love that name, buy the book just because it's called Quirky. No, seriously, we're brought into the lives of innovators that while, like you say, JG, really high intellect, but Dr. Schilling found in her research that it really wasn't just intellect alone that created these breakthrough innovators. So, which leads me to believe that maybe we'll find out tonight, maybe we, you and me, JG, maybe some of our listeners, maybe all of us have some traits that we don't even know that we have that we too could be breakthrough innovators. Maybe we have them, we don't know we have them, or maybe we have them, we don't even know how to use them. I'm all in. Let's take the journey tonight together and figure this out. What are we gonna, well, do you think you're a radical innovator? Uh, I think I create a lot of chaos, and because of the chaos (laughs) I create, I'm innovative. Yeah, well, let's find out what Dr. Schilling has to say. Stay tuned. Get the news you need whenever and wherever you need it. Follow WCBS on Twitter and like us on Facebook. You can even listen to WCBS on your phone with live streaming and audio on demand with the CBS local app. Stay connected with your favorite news radio station all day long. When you need to know, WCBS has you covered. There are innovators and then there are radical innovators. And tonight we're going to learn about the commonalities of some of the greatest breakthrough innovators in the world, from Albert Einstein to Elon Musk. What is it about these outliers that are so different than a typical innovator? And more importantly, what patterns do they have in common? You're listening to Gut Wisdom. I'm Deirdre Koppelman, here with your co-host, John Gassman, a.k.a. J.G. What's up, J.G.? I want to learn... How to be an innovator. You are an innovator. I am? Yeah. Don't you, you don't consider yourself an innovator? I don't know. Oh, come on. Sometimes I get stuck in my own way and I can't fight my way out of a paper bag. Okay. I, however, that I think that happens to everybody. But okay. I, I'd say you're pretty innovative. I consider myself an innovator, but I'm certainly not the Albert Einstein, Elon Musk type innovator. Well, I wonder if we can be. So tonight we have in studio Dr. Melissa Schilling. She is from the John Herzog family. She's, how do you say it? John Herzog? Go slow. Yes, go slow, JG. The John Herzog family professor of management and organizations at the NYU School of Business. Yes. Correct? Yes. Did I say that right? Yes, well, you (laughs) did. You know, you just have to take your time. It's okay, JG. And Dr. Schilling is one of the world's leading researchers in innovation and recently published a book 
Quirky. How do you like that for a title? Well, quirky. Quirky, the remarkable story of the traits, foibles, and genius of breakthrough innovators who change the world. So welcome to Gut Wisdom. Can we call you Melissa, Dr. Schilling? Yes, Yes, please. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Uh, So happy you are here. JG, we always start, just so you know how this goes, Dr. Schilling, and and we want to hear all about quirky. And of course, we want to find out how did you become an expert, a world expert in innovation. So we usually go back and forth. JG, I know, always likes to start with a, a good open question. So I'm going to give you the floor, JG. I'm I'm dying to know a little bit about why you wrote the book. What was the mission behind this? Yeah, thanks for asking that. You know, I've done research on innovation for over 20 years. Uh, I started on in innovation in my dissertation. I did a lot of work on new product development, standards, battles, all these things. And I had a textbook, I still have a textbook that's uh, a really widely adopted textbook on technological innovation, number one in the world. So I, and when, every time you revise a textbook, you have to go out and re- review all the literature and find out what's been done, make sure that you're up to date, because a textbook isn't about you, it's about the field. And uh, so I felt like I knew the innovation literature. And then one day in class in 2010, when Steve Jobs was looking pretty thin, a student asked me, what's going to happen? You know, what's going to happen at Apple? Is the magic going to be gone? How much of the innovation is in the man himself versus how much is in the organization? Is it really just a myth that all of it comes from him? Mm. And, And can it be transferred to a successor? And really at the heart of that question is also another question that's going unspoken. It's how can I be like that? And I thought to myself, surely people have researched this. You know, we should know the answer to this question. It seems like such an obvious question to study. But the research on creativity and psychology hasn't really tackled that. Um, There's a few, you know, creative genius studies, but they're pretty sparse and disconnected. They don't have a lot of conclusions. There's almost no work like that in innovation. And in part, it's because the problem itself is hard to study. So, for instance, in my field, we like large random samples so that we can run statistical tests. But if you do a large random sample, you're not going to get a Steve Jobs or an Elon Musk in there. That's not going to be an ideal way to study outliers like mm. that. And then in psychology, you could do a, lab studies. They like to do lab studies there. But it's going to be even harder to get Elon Musk or Steve Jobs into the lab. Right. So it was, <laughs> it was a problem that just wasn't well suited to you know, having a publishing career and getting tenure. So mostly people haven't tackled it. And I was at a unique stage in my career. I was a full professor. I could do what I wanted. And I started just studying Steve Jobs out of my own personal seething curiosity. Interesting. I wanted to know what he was like as a person, as a child, what his parents were like, what his biases were like, you know, what drove him. Mm-hmm. And then a weird thing happened is that as I was studying Steve Jobs, I suddenly recognized all these commonalities he had with a guy named Dean Kamen. And I don't know if you recognize the name Dean Kamen. I'm going to tell you what, he's, what his most important innovations are, and then I'll tell you the one that you know. So his, Dean Kamen invented the world's first portable drug infusion pump, which if you know anyone with type 1 diabetes and they have a little pump, sure. yeah, that's Dean Kamen's invention, and it's really revolutionized diabetes care. He also invented the world's first portable dialysis machine, which greatly freed people from having to sit you know, for eight hours at a hospital connected mm. to a large dialysis machine. He invented wheelchairs that climbed stairs, prosthetic arms, water purification systems. But the thing you know him for is the Segway, personal transporter. Oh, boy, sure. Yeah. The Segway. The Segway. So the Segway is actually an application of technology developed for the standing wheelchair. Right. Mm. But Dean Kamen is a quirky guy, very quirky, and quirky in some very similar ways to Steve Jobs. 
And at that moment, I realized I want to do a multiple case study research project. I want to gather a group of these people together and, and study them really intensely. And I spent about six years doing that. And, and what was so interesting, uh, Melissa, we can call you Melissa, right? Please. What, who were the eight people that you studied and, and you know highlighted in your book, Quirky? Okay, so to get them, uh, I wanted to remove myself out of the selection process as much as possible so that I wouldn't bias the sample. So I scraped the tops of all the lists of most famous inventors, most famous innovators. There's, there's lots of those lists that you can find. And then uh, only chose people, first of all, that were known for multiple huge breakthrough innovations. Because if you get someone who's a one-hit wonder, it's a lot harder to separate person from context. You know, maybe they were just at the right place at the right time. Right. Good point. So you want someone who's innovated their whole life. And then you then you know a little bit, you have a little bit more faith that it's something in them driving that process. Sure. And then you also want to find people... Uh, about whom multiple biographies have been written so that you aren't unduly influenced by a biographer, for Mm -hmm, instance. mm -hmm. You want people about whom you can get firsthand content, like quotes and letters from family or from the innovator themselves, so that you can hear their voice telling you what drove them or what they believed. And by the time I did that, my set was pretty small. So from that set, I chose people across different time frames and different technologies. And my great disappointment was that there was only one woman by the time I did that screening. Yeah, down. We, we have a question about that later on in the yeah. show about about women and and breakthrough innovators. Uh, so who were the eight? In oh, sorry, I didn't yeah. answer your question. <laughs> that's okay, okay, <laughs> that's what so, I'm here for. So we started with Dean Kamen and, and Steve Jobs, but then we also end up with Elon Musk, Thomas Edison, Nikola Tesla, Albert Einstein, Benjamin Franklin, Marie Curie. Did I leave anyone out? Did I get to eight there? That's eight. I okay. got eight. Okay. I got Good. eight. You hit it. Good. So did you find, I'm just curious, what were, you know, maybe one of the top two or three traits and characteristics that these eight innovators had? So one of the things that stood out really strongly, and it was surprising because I definitely hadn't gone looking for it, although I guess you would say it's a little bit at the root of how Jobs and Cayman are similar. Uh, is this sense of separateness. So all of these people, and for different reasons, right, all different reasons that, that led to this, but all of them ended up feeling sort of disconnected from the social world, feeling detached from it, or feeling like its rules didn't apply to them. Hmm. And uh, it, sometimes it seemed a little, you know, they were unconventional, or they were a little awkward, or sometimes yeah. even a little lonely. But that separateness made them much more independent thinkers. It made them much more likely to challenge conventional wisdom. It made them stand up to other people's definition of what was possible or what was normal. And it really was part of what was at the heart of their innovative thinking. So were they socially awkward? Yeah, a lot Could of them be. were a lot of them were quite socially awkward. Uh-huh. But sometimes, you know, it, it's not that they all had some innate social awkwardness trait, although some did. But sometimes it was something like Thomas Edison, for instance, was mostly deaf and he felt really uncomfortable in social situations. Hmm. Uh, Dean Kamen is, is just a, maybe a, he's a naturally sort of quirky guy. Uh, Marie Curie suffered from chronic deep depression from the time she was a child because both her mother and her sister died when she was quite young and and she spiraled into depression and ended up isolating herself in her studies and just Hmm. focusing on studies as an escape. Hmm. Uh, Elon Musk, believe it or not, you know, when I started this project, I had this image of Elon Musk as this Tony Stark playboy, like out of the Iron Man movie. Right. Because I had read that John Favreau based that character on him. So I thought he was going to be, you know, that kind of guy. But it turns out that Elon Musk, first of all, was very small when he was a child, even though he's quite a large man now. 
uh, and he was bullied, badly, badly bullied. And he was very nerdy and so introspective that his family thought he was deaf and had him tested for deafness. And uh, so he used to escape into books, uh, was a voracious reader, yeah. spent a lot of time just, you know, away from inside. the other kids. Yeah, mm-hmm. inside himself, in mm-hmm. inside the home, you know, not a particularly social person. Mm-hmm. You know, I go back to my days in high school, and I attended a lot of schools. I was a troubled kid. <clears throat> and I remember there was this one student my age, and uh, I guess the word is quirky. You know, he was eccentric. He was unorthodox, very strange, odd, bizarre. There was something to him. And as I said at the beginning, you know, one step ahead, you're a genius. Two steps, you're a crackpot. And I always used to think, I can't make this guy out. He gets 100 on every exam. He aces it. He hardly studies, completely introverted, Mm. uh, you know, always by himself, off the chart IQ, I guess. Uh, But... You know, he couldn't relate to people. Right. right. And now where he is today, he's not Elon Musk, but this fellow is a very successful entrepreneur. He would try all these different things and create different gadgets. And, you know, some of these gadgets have turned out to be very big um, innovations. And was he made? And, and, and was and he made fun of? Oh, he was picked on. People used to bully right, because him. Because he was and, awkward. Yeah. Yeah. And and I and I was, I befriended him, and, and but little did I know, he was really uh, like a Talmudic scholar. He was a genius. This wow. kid. Interesting. That's a great story. And, Interesting. And, and and you think about it. How many people do we know today? As we said, that you think they're a little off. But really, they're all together. You well, know, I guess, they, and yeah. there's different ways of being together, right? Yeah. Like we just our ha- definitions are very different than what it is. Yeah. Right? What were you going to say, Melissa? Oh, I was going to say, you know, Elon Musk. He had this photograph. Still has a photographic memory. Yeah. And read every book in the public library. And then when he ran out of books, he started reading the encyclopedia, and he committed big tracts of it to memory. So he would say things in class, like the exact distance from the Earth to the Moon. And instead of that making the other kids like him, it made them hate him, right? right? That's that's why he was bullied. You know, I think there's almost a fine line, right? I believe there are some psychological conditions, if you will, schizophrenia, bipolar, you know, even people who have autism that are off the charts in almost genius that, like, my question is, do you have to, you know, is there some kind of psychological something that contributes to yeah this break being a breakthrough innovator so this was probably one of the biggest insights i think of of my research that i'm that's something that i'm probably most proud of okay good perfect cliffhanger <laughs> cliffhanger <laughs> yeah 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 i want to hear that but okay. we're all, we wait just have, we have a gift a gut wisdom gift listeners listen up if you want to win a copy of dr Schilling's new book Quirky. You're giving away books again? I'm You're giving, away, giving books. away books. Go, go ahead and email me at dk at gutwisdom, G-U-T-W-I-Z-D-O-M dot com. Of course, remember, not while you're driving. We have five to give away, 
And uh, I can't wait to hear the story of uh, what Dr. Schilling is bringing back with us. So, you're listening to Gut Wisdom. Stay tuned. Introducing Play.it, a podcast network like no other. At Play.it, you can hear your favorite WCBS features on demand. In the WCBS Eye on Politics. I'm Pat Farnack with the WCBS Health and Wellbeing Report. I'm Steve Greenberg talking about your next job. Hear those and more from WCBS when you need it. Plus, great content from other CBS stations. For the best in news, sports, business, and tips for your lifestyle go to play.it today breakthrough innovators people come to mind when i think of that albert einstein nikola tesla steve jobs mm. you know the founder of apple it oh my god familiar JJ. So, you think yeah <laughs> how about ben franklin thomas edison yeah these people have they are the fathers the grandfathers of innovation breakthrough ideas that have helped transform the world today. So aside from being merely super smart, what other traits and characteristics do they share that we can learn from and learn from them to identify? Yeah, right? well, we're so going to find I, out. Yes, I am J.G. John Gassman, and you are here listening to Gut Wisdom with our favorite host, Deirdre Koppelman. Wahoo, it's Saturday night. It's Gut Wisdom. Hi, J.G. Hi, listeners. <laughs> I'm always chuckling. So we have in studio Dr. Melissa Shilling. Yes, we do. She You're wrote a book. Tilting quirky. her head towards her. Yes. yes. Quirky. Yes. Quirky, quirky. Are you quirky? I am definitely a little bit of a quirk. How quirky are you? How quirky do you need to be? This is the question. To be or not to be quirky? How quirky do you need to be to really be a breakthrough innovator? Innovator. And who better to share with us than, as you were saying, yeah, Dr. Dr. Schilling, world expert in innovation. Hi. Hi. Thank you. Yeah. She's back. Okay. So, Gigi, where we, we, we left off, what were you sharing with us? You had a good story to tell us. Yeah. So, so it's interesting. We, we've known for a long time that there was this uh, genetic correlation between families that spawn creative geniuses and families that spawn schizophrenics. That, that research goes way back. Schizophrenics to geniuses. Wow. Yes. And, you know, we've always had some sort of association between genius and madness. That's something that we've yeah. uh, I- intuited. But it turns out when you study Nikola Tesla, it all comes into such sharp relief how intelligence and creativity and genius are all connected. Because Nikola Tesla, if anybody I studied, was the most extreme on so many dimensions. He was probably the most brilliant, but also the most broken, definitely the most weird. He had all these little, uh, you know, OCD characteristics. Like he couldn't be around anything spherical. If a woman wore pearls, he would like shudder and feel sick to his stomach. And he had to divide the cubic root of his food uh, such that if, his, if, if the food on his plate wasn't perfectly divisible by a cubic root, he wouldn't eat it. He washed his hands incessantly. He walked around buildings three times before entering. So he had all <laughs> these signs of obsessive compulsive disorder. But he also had very clear-cut signs of mania. So, for instance, he only slept about two hours a night if he slept at all. Wow. He was prone to uh, gambling addictions and to fleeting thoughts, rushing thoughts, and to great feelings of grandeur. And people, uh, a lot of people considered him to be very hubristic. Like the things he Mm -hmm. said he would achieve, like building a water wheel under Niagara to harness its energy, sounded like hubris until he accomplished it. 
right? <laughs> so hmm. when you study Nikola Tesla, you start to see the mania very clearly. But if you mania is driven by elevated dopamine, right? Radically elevated dopamine. Now, if you start backtracking a little bit and looking at other things we know about dopamine, one of the things you'll discover is that Parkinson's patients sometimes, when they first start treatment, suddenly have all these artistic and creative capabilities unleashed. And, and so people for a while thought that Parkinson's caused creativity. But no, it's, it's the, the dopamine? Le- it's the levodopa that they're being treated with. Huh. So initially when they're treated with levodopa, it's hard to get that amount just right that it's really bringing them to normal. It's actually bringing them past normal. And it makes them a little jittery and it makes them super creative and it makes their mind fire a little faster. We also know that dopamine can enhance working memory and executive control, which are both things that are related to intelligence. Mm -hmm. And if you have exceptional working memory and executive control, that can facilitate creativity because it means you're able to move through paths of cognitive association faster and farther than other people. So, for instance, Elon Musk, he can do calculus and physics in his head, and he's always thinking about 10 steps out. Well, when someone's thinking 10 steps out, a path of association, they're going to get somewhere that you don't get to. And yeah. it, it might look random. It might look weird. You might have, it, it just might seem bizarre. But in fact, there's a whole logical sequence to it. And, so, and it's sort of, th- and I think about that, you know, we're by Brian, Brian Park in Midtown Manhattan. Right. And in the summertime, you have all these guys that come out and play chess. Some of them look, you would think, oh my God, this guy's a homeless person right. the way he's dressed. Right. Guy's a, 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 a genius. He, he's thinking like, Five, ten, sixteen steps ahead because I've spoken to these guys yeah. when they play chess and they checkmate you in like five or six moves. And I'm like, how did how'd you do that? And the guy's a genius. He's like way ahead. Chess masters are routinely thinking yeah, seven so, to ten steps ahead. So I think of the chess masters being yeah. like one of these people that clearly fall into this category. Well, I'm thinking about this whole dopamine situation, and then I'll, I'll ask it with a, a secondary question. Why is it that there aren't as many women named as world famous breakthrough innovators? And is that a correlation? Do they have less dopamine than men? Wow, that's a really great question. You know, I studied the woman issue pretty intensely because, of course, that's the first thing everybody asks. Why is there only one woman in your set? And when you study Marie Curie, her life, it's obvious why there's only one Marie Curie in the set. And that is her life. It's, you know, simultaneously very inspiring and heartbreaking. So wait, wait, wait. Let's just stop. She was the founder of the theory of radioactivity? Yes, and discovered okay. radium and polonium okay. and invented portable x-ray units that yep. she actually took to the field in World War One herself mm-hmm. and is right. attributed with saving over a million soldiers' lives. Huge. Really amazing. She was the first woman to win a Nobel Prize, first person to win two Nobel Prizes in different fields. And here's a little fun quiz for you. Who do you think was the next woman to win a Nobel Prize? After her? Uh Uh-huh. Oh, my gosh. Um, You you can give up if you want. Grace Hopper? No, her daughter. Marie Curie's daughter. Get out. Yeah, isn't that amazing? Really? Yeah. But but if we look at Marie Curie's story, the fact that she became a scientist the way she did is, is nothing short of a miracle. Because in the time she was growing up, she was growing up in uh, what was then Russia-occupied Poland. Mm-hmm. Women couldn't go to college. 
right. in, in Warsaw. Most of Europe didn't allow women in universities. They were not welcome in science. It was considered distasteful to have them in professional roles of any kind. Usually their education stopped at about 14. Hmm. So when she wanted to become a scientist, she was definitely considered odd and not in a good way, right, by a lot sure. of people. And she saved up money to travel to to France where she could attend the Sorbonne because women were allowed at the Sorbonne. And, mm. you know, she suffered an intense discrimination, right? When Even when she had these irrefutable discoveries, she was not allowed to present at the Academy of Sciences. They would have women, men present her papers on her behalf. <laughs> and then when she was nominated or when her work was nominated for the Nobel Prize, they wanted to give it to her husband instead of her. And he insisted and pushed back and said, this is really Marie's work. I will not take it if you don't put Marie on the award. So the fact that she was able to do what she did is pretty astonishing. Right? Absolutely. And and she also, and here's another piece that's, um, you know, it's interesting because a lot of it, I'm just going to say it and you can decide how you feel about it. But she basically had to give her children, she was very obsessive, right, on her science. She worked night and day, even not eating and fainted in the lab bench repeatedly, worked herself really very hard to her death, in fact. Mm. Uh, but she basically gave her daughters to her father-in-law to raise he raised them so that she could work on her science so that she could work and when her the daughter that didn't win a nobel prize her other daughter eve subsequently wrote a biography about her mother after her mother's death you can hear love and adoration and respect but you also hear sadness and pining and longing and sure you know i would have wanted more of my mother sure so that was an incredibly difficult choice that you can imagine not very many women could have made to have both made that choice and to have fought her way, their way into school and to stood up to all the criticism. It just wasn't an option for women for a very long stretch of time. So bring us to today, though. Right. It is an option for women. It is women. an option. It's an although, option. Although some might argue that it is still not an easy option. Right. Uh, one might say, however. Yeah. What do you think about it? So there's, there's two things going on there. First, let's just point out, I scraped the tops of lists of most famous innovators and inventors. Right. So my sample is going back 300 years, and for most of that sample, women aren't in it. Are, you know, women are playing a very small role. So there, there's a bias against women sure. in that sampling technique, which I think is a big part of why I only have one woman in my story. But then today, the question is, do we still have those obstacles? In most countries of the world, women, not all, but in most countries of the world now, women have equal access to education, which is fantastic. Uh, I still think the child rearing issue, although it's not always politically correct to bring up, I think it's I think it's an issue because all of the innovators I studied were single mindedly obsessive about their work. You look at Elon Musk, he works 100 hours uh, a week. Right. And insular. Yeah. To themselves. Right. You know, separate. Yeah. From most, if not all people. Yeah. Right? So now, I, they weren't I, raising families. I have an obsessive personality. And before I had kids, I used to stay up until 4 a.m. chasing down problems routinely. That was my, that, I loved to do that. Then I had kids. Right. And once I had <laughs> kids, you know, at 5 p.m. or 6 p.m. sometimes, I had to make a conscious decision to dial it back and switch over to my mom job. Yes. And... You know, on the one hand, people will say, well, we just need to have more equality among men and women in child care giving, or maybe we need more affordable child care, all these things. But you know what? That's not quite, quite the answer because I can afford child care, but I don't want to do that. I want to raise my kids. Of course. Sure. And a lot of women feel that way. A lot of men probably feel that way too. But culturally, for a very long time, women have especially been enculturated 
to feel that way. And so it's not that we can't give our children up so that we can focus on science. It's probably that we don't want to. Want to. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. You know, yes, we had Morton Hansen on the show. I don't know if you remember this, but one of his principles about really being great at work is being the single mindedness. Yeah. The the focus, the dedication, saying no to yeah. a lot of esoteric things that come on your plate. Yeah. You remember that? Anyways. Can I bring so, up one more thing about yeah. women that I think I'm really excited because we're launching a big research study on this now. And uh, it's really interesting how Marie Curie and Steve Jobs kind of reveal this. If you, so let me back up a minute. Yeah. Historically, people tried to match personality traits to creativity, but they were using large uh, random samples, often of students. So you don't actually get creative outliers usually in those studies, which are getting a sort of normal creativity. And the only trait that kind of loaded up with creativity is openness to experience. And it's not a very strong or reliable effect. When you look at outliers, to me, it's very clear that if we measured uh, the scale for agreeableness or disagreeableness, Mm -hmm. that that would come out really strongly because all of these innovators would have scored high on disagreeableness. I knew you would say that. And and I don't mean, you know, that they were all nasty, although some of them were. but Contrarian. But but contrarian. Mm -hmm. And they don't go along to get along. And they're going to stick with their point, even if you don't agree with them. That's that's disagreeableness. And I think the penalty to women of being disagreeable is significantly higher. And yes, I agree with that. And I would go one step further and say, if you look at children, children from toddlers to elementary school, middle school, high school, we're conditioned to do what? Children are conditioned to what? Behave. So those that are not getting along and are disagreeable or just simply contrarians, they, they just don't go along, right, to get along, are those the innovators? Are those potential breakthrough innovators are we dismissing them and shushing them and punishing them in some way or another and squashing yeah what could be revolutionary uh ideas and and technology and productivity and f- what are we doing yeah i mean it's definitely clear that the people who end up on most famous innovator lists are disproportionately likely to have struggled with school either not done well in school dropped out of school or hated school and even someone like you know elon musk he had a tendency to not go to class and just show up and take the tests albert einstein got a phd but man his professors really actively disliked him and that's the reason he had such a hard time getting an academic post uh, you know, it was a really consistent theme. Dean Kamen said, you know, the school just didn't work for him because the, the structure of the curriculum would come at him in a way that just didn't suit the way he learned. He needed to do things his own way. So he dropped out of school and told the university professors, we well, didn't actually drop out. He kept paying tuition. But he said, I'm paying my tuition so that you will be my consultants. I'm not going to go to class or take your tests, but I'll pay your tuition and you'll answer my questions. Very, very Fascinating. JG, I'm sorry. Can you share with us and remind us and our listeners tonight quickly how many uh, elementary schools, middle schools, high schools, summer camps? Come on, give it up. Doesn't mean I'm a genius. Uh, just answer the question. I went to two elementary schools. I went to four high schools. I went to eight summer camps. I went to one, two, three college. Two, three, how many high three, schools? Four high schools. Every year I was in a different school. Were you thrown actually, out of them? Act- actually, one year I was in two high schools. Okay, I want you to hold that. <laughs> yes. I had my own way of doing things. It's... I didn't agree with the teachers, and I felt like I knew better, and I was going to show everybody. <clears throat> and I did show everybody. That I sounds did it a my lot, way. Sounds a lot like an innovator to me. Yeah, but I'm no genius. <laughs> well, right, and I, you know, 
Mm. I have more Hold comments about. Well, you know what? I I maybe aye, it's aye, because aye. as a as a woman, I was a pleaser. I mm. didn't want to get mm-hmm. in trouble. I didn't necessarily like the way I had to learn. Um, I'm a creative person. I am usually ten steps ahead, and I can't even necessarily articulate how to get there because it just happens that I'm there already. And maybe the difference is, JG, I don't know. Maybe we just need more dopamine. Let's see. Anyway, if you'd like to win a copy of Dr. Schilling's book, Quirky, listeners, go ahead and email me at dk at gutwisdom, G-U-T-W-I-Z-D-O-M dot com. Not while you're driving. We're coming back with Dr. Schilling. Let's get quirky. When you're on the train, it doesn't mean you're out of touch. Listen to WCBS on your phone or tablet. We're streaming live 24-7 with the news you need to know. Go to radio.com or cbsnewyork.com and you'll stay informed on your way to and from the office with WCBS News Radio 880. Innovators continue to change the world and the next one may be sitting right here with us tonight. I'm Deirdre Koppelman. You're listening to Gut Wisdom. I'm here with your co-host, JG, and Dr. Melissa Schilling, world expert on innovation. And professor, professor professor. at NYU. Yes, thank you, JG. I would get there if you would let me. And not only that, uh, Dr. Schilling has a book out. It's called Quirky, and it's all about identifying uh, through the journey of eight breakthrough innovators uh, from Einstein to Elon Musk, uh, there's eight of them, and, and we'll get into that. And, and there's you, only one woman, though. There's only one Boo-hoo. woman, and we talked about why. But here's where I want to go with you, JG, because you, Me. like some of these other geniuses, were thrown out of I don't know how many schools. A lot. And uh, Dr. Schilling, is is JG, does he have the traits and characteristics? Can do, what do you think? Well, let's let's evaluate another trait that almost all innovators have. Mm. And it turns out to be really important because anyone can have interesting ideas. Anyone, anyone really can have great ideas. Most people don't follow through. And when you see breakthrough ideas come into the fruition in the world, somebody has worked doggedly behind them to get that, to make that happen. In fact, these innovators all had in just amazing persistence and tenacity. They had grit. They were really just intensely tenacious and passionate about their goals. And one of the reasons is that most of them were idealistic. So all of them except for Edison, and we can talk about why not Edison, but the other seven were all intensely idealistic. They had these idealistic goals they were pursuing. So Elon Musk, he's not in Tesla for the money or in SpaceX for the money. He fundamentally wants to get us onto renewable energies, and he wants to colonize Mars because he thinks that's the way to save our species. Dean Kamen wants to remove human suffering from the world. Benjamin Franklin wanted to create an egalitarian and free America. Uh, Marie Curie was basically fighting for all Poles because Polish positivism said the only way we're going to save Poland under Russian occupation is if we contribute to science. We'll never beat them through military means. So we have to be remembered for being scholars. So each of these innovators had this intense idealistic goal that was more important to them than their reputation, than money, than leisure sometimes more important than their family or their health and it drove them it drove them very very hard and also sometimes that idealistic goal if it's something that feels meaningful to other people it helped rally support so for instance a lot of people are on board with elon musk's goals at spacex and tesla so even though he may not always be the most charismatic speaker and uh, the stock price, that's a, a whole separate conversation. <laughs> right. There are a lot of people who support his cause and they want to cheer him on. <sighs> so okay. are you idealistic, JG? 
Do no. you have a big idealistic no. goal? No. I think in the past the answer would be yes. And I think I've lost some focus. I I think I've become a bit gold diffused. Okay. Uh, I, I I would go back many, many years and say when I was deeply focused on different things, oh my gosh, nothing could get in my way. I right. was disciplined and very determined to accomplish that. But what would happen is along the way I'd get a little bored because I would realize very quickly or maybe a little later, I got this. It's a cinch. I got the answer. Eh, I'm on to something else, bigger oh, yeah. and better. However, would you say you you are idealistic? Uh, Not anymore. So I am. I've lost it. Would you say that I'm idealistic? No. Just to be disagreeable. Well, yes, yes, yes. Listeners. Yeah. She is extremely on. idealistic. I mean, think yes, about yes, this yes. show. We created a show. From nothing. Well, not quite like Seinfeld created, you know, a show out of nothing, but... This didn't. This concept just was a concept that came out of the blue, and every, every idea and there there's a goal behind it, and the goal yeah. is to bring Change wisdoms based on other people's journeys, what they've learned. I don't care what walk of life you're from, and what can you what can you bring to the table? I believe it's every human's purpose, and and I'm sure you know you talk about what's your why, what is everybody's purpose. I firmly believe. It is my idealistic way of looking at things that it is every human's purpose to help another human, period. Very simple. And the way in which I want to bring that forth is with JG through gut wisdom, bringing people here that have been through journeys because we can all learn something from somebody else. We've all had a journey. Some have been tougher than others, more interesting than others, maybe, maybe not. And you could be helping somebody think a little differently about something that they're going through or yeah. relate to. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, trying to get rich, it you would think would be very motivating, but it's actually not enough for most people. It's not. And it's true. Steve Jobs once said, I don't care about being the richest guy in the cemetery. You know, he right. really, he wanted to change the world. Right. And Elon Musk, you know, by the time he was part of the sale of PayPal in his late 20s, he mm-hmm. had $180 million. That was pretty much the end of when he cared about money. At that point, it was about what can I do that's important in the world? And he looked around and he saw that NASA had no intention of going to Mars. And he thought, oh, my God, but we have to go to Mars. And he pushed up his sleeves and said, "Okay, well, I'll take us there myself. Mm. And, you know, went through very difficult times to do that. Right? The whole space industry told him it's not possible to make reusable rockets. We've been trying to do it for 50 years. If we can't do it with all of our expertise, what makes you think you can do it? It's a fool's errand. You know, they really beat him up on it. Game on. And he just he just shrugged his shoulders and said, well, I think I can do it. And more importantly, he didn't give up. Right. So at one point after the first three Falcon Heavies had exploded and he was on the verge of bankruptcy and Tesla was on the verge of bankruptcy too and he was in the middle of a divorce. You know, he was on the verge of a nervous breakdown but he just kept going. It was that important to him. So taking those wisdoms, taking those wisdoms, the idealistic way, the, the humanity first, not money, how do we bring that into today's workplaces? How do we, how do we bring that into our families, our children, how do we foster, how do we foster all of this? Yeah. Okay. So one of the things that jumps out is that 
for ourselves, if you want to think big and be really motivated, you should be cultivating an ambitious goal for yourself, Mm -hmm. right? Don't be thinking three months out or a year out. Think about what is that thing in the world that you really think needs to be changed and figure out how you're going to change it. Having a big goal like that is going to broaden the way you think, and it's going to change your 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 degree of effort and motivation, and and it's just going to it's going to crystallize the way you think about life. Um, another thing that's super valuable: you don't have to be socially awkward or deaf or autistic to benefit from time alone and becoming a more separate thinker, right? So one of the mis- one of the things this research changed about my parenting. I have two kids, ten and thirteen. And a lot of the parents around me have got their kids scheduled to the hilt, oh, yeah. right? <laughs> they want them imagine. in soccer and they want them in, you know, glee club and music classes because they want them to be fully cultivated and to have these great social skills. Well-rounded. Well-rounded. <laughs> but you know what? They're giving up something because when a kid sits alone in a quiet place and draws and writes and thinks about what they believe in the world, that's really important for developing the way they think for forming their own cognitive paths of association, for forming their own beliefs about how the world works and about how it should work, mm-hmm. and becoming a, a more uh, uh, independent thinker. Mm-hmm. And there's been, you know, Csikszentmihalyi, famous creativity scholar. Uh, for years, people thought that introverted people were more creative than extroverted people. But in the end, it's not, it's, it's not really that introversion drives creativity. It's that if you have no tolerance for sitting down and spending time alone in solitude, you don't fully develop your creative potential. So extroverts have creative potential too, but sometimes they're not spending the time sitting and thinking on their own to fully develop it. We can all do that right now. And so we can do that with our children. Mm-hmm. We can do it with ourselves. Wisdom is, right? Let's not have them so overly scheduled. Right. And let's give them time to think and be uh, alone, yeah. right? Not be- Without expand, a screen. Without a screen, right? Yeah. We can do that with ourselves. I. What about at work? I mean, yeah. do we create think tanks and just give the opportunity to people to go into the think tank room and sort of remove themselves from the day-to-day insanity and the minutia and the next goal that has to be accomplished yeah. and let people just... There are so many implications for the workplace. We could have a whole hour on that, but I'll give you a couple quick ones. Mm -hmm. One is that we knew for a long time that some companies had had great success with giving employees uh, time to pursue an innovation of their own choosing. So 3M, for instance, Mm -hmm. gives employees 15% of their time to go pursue some innovation. Google had 20% time for all their creative employees. Now, not all companies have enough slack to do that. Sure. And honestly, not all employees feel like they can put that time to good use. But companies that have programs where you can opt into that time, I think often get a lot of value out of that. If you can afford to do that, to give employees time when they have an idea that they want to pursue, give them a way to opt into spending time on an innovation of their own choosing. That's super valuable. Another thing we have learned, we've learned it a lot. There's been a lot of psychology studies on this, and it's surprising that we still make the same mistake over and over again. But brainstorming (laughs) groups don't work. Brain, you put people together in a room to come up with an idea, and they're going to come up with fewer ideas, ideas of less novelty, and ideas of less quality. It's been demonstrated over and over again, and yet we still do it because we've been conditioned to think that a team is more innovative than an individual. Uh, so what we what we what does work is to let people work on their own first and encourage them to be wild and to not be afraid of being weird, and don't tell them that we all have to agree on something. We don't have to pick one solution. We can disagree. You know, working with so many entrepreneurial companies, and we, we've we uh, talked about this in the past as well, talk about doubling the size of your business. 
Okay. Talk about doubling the size of your business. Sounds nice. But it's not so, it's not like a BHAG. It's not a big, hairy, audacious goal. But when you start telling people, well, let's think about growing your business 10 times. All of a sudden, the lights go on, and, and now it's scary. Mm-hmm. It's like it's fun. I, I, don't, I don't right, and for us, it's like wow, this is fun. And you start being more creative, more yeah. more ingen, uh, ingenious with your ideas. You see things that you wouldn't see if you were thinking, "Let's double it," but let's think ten times. You see things from a very different playing field when you think big. Yeah, and you want to make it even better instead of framing yeah. it around sales or or profits frame it around some end goal that everybody cares about in their gut like let's cure cancer let's eliminate childhood poverty mm-hmm. right a, a big hairy audacious goal like that social responsibility something that yeah. is bigger than yourself something that it, it does it, it could be about people it could be about animals it could be about the environment it could mm-hmm. be about technology but something that's beyond you so i have a question yeah do you trust your gut well, I think serial breakthrough innovators trust their gut for sure. That's super important. And the other thing that I've learned, this is an interesting one. From years of being a professor in this field, one thing I know not to trust is my assessment of somebody else's big idea. Mm. Because when somebody has a breakthrough idea, it's almost always seems weird mm-hmm. or unreasonable or odd. Unachievable. Uh, yeah. And mm-hmm. and that's part of what makes it a breakthrough. Exactly. Because if if, if it wasn't weird or Everybody odd or unreasonable, it. it would be out there already, right? <laughs> so I now counsel entrepreneurs and innovators, don't expect other people to get it. Don't go shop your idea around trying to get other people to agree. You might not need to get people on board at some point, but just don't expect other people to understand it. You have a belief in the world. My job is to help uh, give you the tools you need to enact it as best you can. But I'm not going to judge your idea. You wow. are awesome. This is Dr. Melissa Schilling on Gut Wisdom Tonight and uh, author of Quirky, which we have five copies of. So if you're interested in the opportunity to get one of those books, Quirky, that is, email me, dk at gutwisdom, G-U-T-W-I-Z-D-O-M.com. And let me thank you, Melissa. We could go on and on and talk about this. We JG, do you want to say a few couple of uh, few couple of words aside from a big thank you? Big thank you. Oh, thanks for having <laughs> me. Yes. And you know what, listeners, if you want to hear fr- prior episodes, definitely go to our Gut Wisdom website. You can download us on iTunes. Check us out. We're here every Saturday night from 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You could stream it live on radio.com. And we love your feedback. So go to our Facebook page, share everything you have about what you think creates innovative breakthroughs. So until next time, next week, make it a quirky Gut Wisdom Week. Thanks. You've been listening to Gut Wisdom on WCBS News Radio 880. Gut Wisdom comes your way every Saturday night at 7 p.m. on WCBS 880 or anytime at gutwisdom.com. That's wisdom spelled with a Z.